Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Recently, Fordham University launched a burial database project for enslaved African Americans. It allows anyone to submit locations they suspect may be the site of unmarked graves of slaves. Today, I'm speaking with Fordham University's Sandra Arnold, who spearheaded the project. And joining us by phone is Dr. Michael Blakey, former director of the African Burial Ground Project and professor of anthropology at William & Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. My first question is for Sandra. Sandra, describe how you came up with the idea to create a database of where slaves were buried. Well, um, it was a personal journey. I uh, a few years ago, I, you know, I was home visiting my family in Tennessee, and I was spending time with one of my great aunts, uh, who is the daughter of uh, my great grandfather, who was a former slave in um, in Tennessee, and um, she was talking about his uh, burial site, the graveyard where he was buried. But after spending time with her, I got inquisitive about it. And uh, so I went out to visit the site and um, saw that it was just a a wonderful site. She basically had been taking care of it for a while. Your aunt had. Yeah, my Mm -hmm. aunt. She had been uh, paying someone to go out and mow it and take care of it. And it turned out it wasn't this small um, cemetery was um, it, it wasn't extremely large, but definitely larger than what I expected it to be. Um, and there were other graves there. Um, my family, uh, our graves are uh, marked. Um, my great grandfather's grave is marked. He died in the 1940s, and my family made sure he had a um, a gravestone. But I found out through research after um, becoming more inquisitive about the site itself. Um, that there was an entire section there of unmarked uh, graves that belonged to slaves that were a part of this uh, uh, plantation that uh, I also discovered in my research that this cemetery that my great-grandfather is buried in was the remnant, remnants of a plantation cemetery. And this spearheaded your inquisitiveness to find out and therefore create a database for slaves whose burial sites might be lost? Well, I think what got me really interested was, um, I, I don't know, I, I really was able to locate and I, and I guess um, gather so much information about my family history through this cemetery. Because what I did was uh, after uh, finding where my great grandfather was buried and seeing this um, section of of graves that were unmarked. Of course, I was inquisitive about who these people were. I mean, I obviously assumed some of these people were members of my family, Mm -hmm. but um, I knew there was a possibility um, that these were other African-Americans that worked on this particular uh, farm or plantation. And so I started researching in my town and piece together uh, the history of this particular plantation. So how did you spearhead from just this family inquisitiveness, I want to know about my family in the cemetery, mm-hmm. to, you know what, I think everybody should have this opportunity to find out or explain information about about burial sites, slave burial sites. I, I saw, you know, how this discovery, how crucial it was to piecing together information, lost information in my family. And then um, I did start to speak to people, um, you know, through the Nashville Historic uh, Preservation Center. Um, They told me about other sites in that area of Tennessee of people like myself, African-Americans, who had found uh, a burial ground, a slave graveyard or cemetery. And um, because of that discovery, they, too, 
uh, started to piece together missing segments of their family history. And so I thought, wow, you know, uh, burial sites, I mean, obviously it's important to memorialize these, these people. It's important to remember our families, but these sites can hold a lot of information to help us uh, piece together, you know, missing se- segments of our history. And so um, that's when it, where I got the idea of trying to find a way to uh, pull the information together. In the beginning, I didn't really know um, how that was possible. I knew it was a very ambitious <laughs> project. And um, so I went to, uh, I took the information I had from my independent research, went to the Department of African and African American Studies at Fordham. I said, I really think we could start a database uh, if we could get the public to help us, give us information on where these sites are buried, we could lay the foundation for the creation of a burial registry, which could, you know, eventually help the public. And Help the public how? I, again, I think we could help the public in piecing together missing segments of their family history. I mean, I think personally for me that is crucial and at the heart of this project. I'm certain that scholars and historians would find uh, an, a burial registry very helpful, but I think the the um, assistance that this project can do just to to families, I think, is um, profoundly great. So, Dr. Blakey, from a professor's point of view, why is it important to save or preserve these burial sites? Well, I, uh, it's important to first recognize that cemeteries, memorials of, uh, of our dead, um, represent something very fun- that's very fundamentally human. It's what human beings uh, did uh, when our species uh, first evolved. It's the thing that distinguishes us in many ways from other animals and, uh, and even distinguishes Homo sapiens from the uh, species that came before us, uh, that we uh, reflect on our dead, that we bury them with dignity or treat them in some way, cremation, mm-hmm. other means, uh, that, um, that are special. And, uh, you know, during slavery, uh, human, the humanness of the enslaved was contested by those who uh, were the enslavers. It was part of their ability uh, to justify uh, the inhumane treatment of human beings. And so, throughout slavery, however, uh, those uh, African, enslaved Africans and African Americans, knowing themselves to be human, needing and having to be human, buried their dead with uh, uh, as much care as they possibly could. As we've come to the present, uh, now we find that uh, the cemeteries of the enslaved are often hard to find. Those Africans didn't have control of the land on plantations where they buried their dead. So it's a really, in, in some ways, you know, it's a consequence of being human that there are cemeteries. It's a consequence of slavery uh, that there was uh, less control over these cemeteries. Uh, and uh, everything that has happened since has left many of the cemeteries of the enslaved unmarked, lost, on land that uh, families don't have access or don't know about. So, Dr. Blakey, if these sites are so important, why are they vanishing so quickly? Or why does it seem they're vanishing so quickly? 
No one's taking care of them? I don't know that they're vanishing quickly. My real point is that uh, they, there, was little, there were little, few means, rather, um, to maintain them in the first place. But these were enslaved people. They, had, uh, they did not own their own bodies. Um, they negotiated, nonetheless, for these, you know, for the most basic kinds of human needs, including to bury their dead. And so they were allowed within some you know, range of opportunity to do that. In the state of Virginia, they had no right to bury their dead. And in fact, uh, uh, funerals were considered to be opportunities for revolt. Just because they weren't allowed to, they weren't seen as human? No. If one looks, for example, at South Africa during the fight against apartheid, uh, you will note that often the moment of, of a funeral where people come together in moments of high meaning are opportunities for them to rally together uh, to resist. And so even in New York City, um, one of the few documents we have about the African burial ground there comes from clergy, white clergy, who are concerned about the, uh, the... African cultural elements that of those cemeteries at night that made people uh, meant that those Africans were operating on their own terms. They were there were laws that prohibited burial with more than twelve people. There was uh, this kind of resistance that led in uh, uh, to uh, denying them uh, control of their uh, full control of their burials and ultimately their burials were in places that did not belong to them. Municipal land, as in New York, that was uh, uh, covered over, uh, removed from their use as a cemetery, um, and really erased for some period of time. And there was a time back in, uh, certainly in the 1970s, when it appeared that if a contractor could find a found a cemetery in the way of his construction work, uh, he would hope that it was a black cemetery, because the control that blacks have had at that time um, over their affairs was less than had they encountered a, a white cemetery where all of the you know legal institutions could be brought to bear more soundly for its protection. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, along with Dr. Michael Blakey and Fordham University's Sandra Arnold. We're discussing Fordham's recently launched burial database project for enslaved African Americans. It lets anyone submit information about unmarked graves of slaves. You can escape the hustle and bustle and enjoy some downtime with the WFUV member card. Show your WFUV member card and get discounted admission at the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens and Wave Hill in the Bronx. Find out more and see a complete list of places to save with the WFUV member card at WFUV.org. Dr. Blakey, what do you say to critics who may say, well, you know, real estate is a limited and diminishing commodity, especially in New York City, so isn't 
progress more important than physically preserving a gravesite, something that could be preserved maybe in a book or with a plaque like they originally wanted to do at the initial site in Manhattan? So tear down the Washington Monument, tear down Arlington Cemetery, tear down all the small family cemeteries, all the large ones. They are on the human landscape for a reason. Why tear down one and not another? It goes into, it's a part of the, you know, reflection of who we are. And who we are as a society is one that has been, has grown up um, with slavery and notions of white supremacy that have continued, the neglect of African-American history, and relatively less empowerment for African-Americans who are seeking to control their heritage and uh, their sense of self. So what's the goal of this project, Sandra? What ultimately, collecting all this information, having this database, is going to do what? Allow people to maybe start cleaning up the burial sites, or will they be designated some kind of historical site? What's your goal? Obviously, the main goal is just to assist families in piecing together uh, lost fragments of their personal history. Take me through it, okay? I submit my information online mm -hmm. and say, you know what, in my particular place where I grew up, I found this, this burial site that might be my great-great-great-grandmother's. Mm -hmm. So I submit it. Then you guys do what with it? Yeah, we're working on, um, obviously, each um, submission will be will receive follow-up communication. And so we, we will definitely verify every, you know, submission that is uh, submitted. Um, what we So you have a group already to do that? Or? Yeah, we're pulling that together, okay. actually. We, we're encouraging people to, um, if they can, to really work with the property owner. Um, a lot of these sites are actually on property not owned by black people still that that so they may not have a, the same understanding or the same type of reverence for the site that someone with a history connected to the site would have uh possibly but i think more i i think it's difficult for some people to know that this history is on their property uh i want to be sensitive to that but i also uh i know from again from my research uh, although there are individuals that may be sensitive to that, I know that they would still want to help us. You know, Sensitive meaning, and Dr. Blakey, you can chime in here too, sensitive knowing that there was a slave burial ground on their property because they are apprehensive to acknowledging slavery, or do they feel they might be connected, their family, their ancestry might be connected? Why would somebody be uncomfortable with the idea, not just having a burial site on their on their property, with the idea of slavery associated with something that they're connected with? I think all of that is true, in addition to um, the economic value of private property that one can use flexibly. Mm. So uh, if it is a, a sacred site, uh, that affects how one might be able to use uh, that property. If it's old family land, uh, that then becomes a testament to uh, slavery in, in the hands of that family. And on the national landscape, uh, there's a great deal of denial of, uh, you know, slavery, its consequences, uh, its brutality. Um, so uh, all of these are things that you know, we see played out in a variety of ways, obviously, in terms of uh, wanting 
to have you know expeditious use of property for one's profit uh, is something that we understand is with us. And it's also the case, if we look at public education, uh, that the history of slavery and history of African Americans more generally is little told. And the severity uh, of uh, the problem of slavery, um, you know, is very watered down in our national uh, consciousness. Dr. Blakey, can you give my listeners a brief understanding of New York's relationship with slavery? Uh, because many people only associate the South with slavery and believe the North has always been sort of an in- inclusive state. So I know it began here, slavery began here in 1626 and was imbo- abolished in 1827. But between that, what was New York's relationship with it? Well, let me uh, initially point out that that's a, you know, that's a good example of what I uh, had just mentioned. Uh, a mythology has been created about slavery that abdicates uh, the North of all involvement and responsibility. The fact is uh, that the exploitation of human beings to build the wealth of this nation uh, was in all 13 colonies. In New York, yes. Uh, In fact, those who the Dutch enslaved as they began in 1626 with just 13 individuals and then uh, built up large numbers of enslaved people so that about 40% of households had at least one enslaved person. When the English came uh, in the uh, 1660s, there was a transformation towards the harsher, in some sense, more developed uh, British slavery with slave codes that denied Africans, uh, even where they set free the right to inherit property, uh, a number of other human rights that were part of the social control of slavery. So that New York had, by the time of the War of Independence, uh, 20% of its population were enslaved people. Uh, Historian Ira Berlin argues that 50% 50% of its labor force was enslaved. Doing what kind of jobs? I mean, we didn't have cotton here, did we? Well, uh, I guess the equivalent uh, was the Hudson Valley, uh, where grains were being produced in Long Island. They were also building the city. Uh, they built the roads. They cleared the land. They built the buildings. They were involved in all the industries. They were involved at the docks in uh, estivadors, uh, moving all of the merchandise involved in the trade uh, from which New York would develop. And at the same time, these people were commodities that were traded. What we also produced uh, a really unparalleled research uh, report that together tell us the story of, of slavery prior to the ending of the transatlantic trade, when the trade uh, was wide open and people could be, you know, were, were disposable, really. They preferred in New York not for enslaved women to have children in their households, but rather to buy somebody who was already weaned, and they had access to, you know, a large market of such people. Interestingly, when one has data on the demography, 
the ages of people, when they died, the ages at which they died, and so forth, sex. These are things that we can obtain uh, and have obtained from skeletal data. Uh, we want to reconstruct um, uh, a great deal of the history of the community. And in this case, one of our most recent findings is that over the course of time throughout the 1700s, the work um, that was extremely high for men, African men, in, um, at the early part of that century, where the, uh, a particular muscle attachment that's, that tells us a lot about heavy lifting uh, is enlarged because of the arduous work uh, done by about 75% of men. About 75% of African men have an enlarged linea aspera um, set of muscles in the thigh. And that was based on um, them working so hard, or is that something that's genetic? It's based on them working so hard. Mm -hmm. The skeleton is, uh, is active and adapting to all kinds of pressures and strains of nutrition and uh, is responsive immunologic in, in, in terms of the uh, inflammation, uh, immunological uh, uh, reactions to disease, and the attachments for muscles are become larger uh, the more those muscles are used. And so we have looked at 30-plus oh, muscle attachments to get a sense of how arduous the work was for the 419 uh, individuals who were excavated at the African burial ground in New York. And this, the one muscle that uh, um, is... Uh, uh, particularly useful for looking at uh, lifting uh, and uh, really an assortment of other behaviors that include walking uh, is the linea aspera in the back of the femur or the thigh bone. Seventy-five percent of African men had, uh, we call it uh, enthesopathy or hypertrophy of the linea aspera. And twenty-five. Could you say that in English, please? Yeah, it was enlarged. <laughs> mm -hmm. And 25% uh, of females, of women, had an enlarged linear aspera at the beginning of the 18th century. For men, that does not change. So at the end of the 18th century, they still have about, uh, it's still about 75% who have an enlarged linear aspera. But over four phases of time in that century, the frequency of enlarged linear in females increases steadily, so that by the end of the century, uh, they too uh, show about 75%, maybe 76% with enlarged linear aspirates. And what we know is happening based on the historical work of the project is that slaveholders were trying to, uh, were concerned that when the revolts occurred, 1712, 1741, there was an excess number of African men in New York. And so they began to import fewer of them, and they were coming through the Caribbean where there had been a good deal of rebellion, and more women and children directly from Africa, uh, such that the, there came to be an excess number of women and children, more women than men, which is very different from the Caribbean. And uh, that was the motivation of controlling the revolts. Well, you know, 
that might work if the productivity could be maintained. And our skeletal evidence suggests that productivity was being maintained. So what did this mean socially at that time? You, you had more women doing more, more of the work that men were doing, doing the same, same amount of work with the same amount of productivity and developing the same type of muscles. But what did having so many women and so many children say for New York City culturally at that time? You know, there clearly must have been increased interracial uh, mating um, throughout slaveholding Americas, that was uh, beyond the control of African men or women. Not that they did not negotiate it to the best of their ability, uh, but they didn't really have a say so in rape and concubinage were the rule, uh, and that must have taken place. One of the things that we we do see is a uh, low fertility. Well, really, uh, there is fertility, but there's very high infant mortality so that among these Africans. So that, uh, there and this is, is among Africans um, in New York City at that time? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that um, there is no natural increase in the population. The only increase in the population is coming from importation of people. And that is consistent with the kind of thing one finds in the Caribbean, um, but uh, that has often been attributed to rising rates of syphilis, low numbers of women, and it's the number of women that determines the fertility. So here we have in New York a place with very little syphilis, a place with many women, uh, no uh, increase in population based on their reproduction. And what that speaks to at least is um, very high mortality uh, among young people. We think it speaks to uh, the hard work that women are engaged in, which uh, has an an effect of uh, reducing fertility as well. So it's, uh, you know, in some ways New York is, you know, like the Caribbean during this period when the slave trade is wide open and people are uh, more disposable than they would be later. Um, in some ways, New York is, is peculiar, and we, we continue to explore those, uh, those differences and similarities. And that was my last question, Dr. Blakey, Sandra. Are there, is there anything you want to touch on that I didn't get a chance to ask you? Uh, you know, I'm really very glad that Ms. Arnold is... Uh, developing this primarily for communities, uh, primarily to help families think about their past and make those connections. Cemeteries are an important way of doing that. Um, We're trying to do some of that here in Virginia as we uh, uh, make these cemeteries known uh, Mm -hmm. to a a public that can use them. Mm -hmm. And and I guess I would also just like to add that um, even though people believe this is a great project, it really cannot move forward without their help. So we really want people to not only go to the website, but pass the website along, post it wherever you want to post it. But I think it, we just really want people to be aware of what we're doing, and uh, we want people to contribute. This is a group of people, enslaved African Americans, that I believe are just simply forgotten. 
um, and this is a way for them to be properly memorialized. And, um, and I think by dignifying the resting places, um, that that's a great way to do that because a lot of these sites, it's, I don't know if you've ever been to any of them, but they're, 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 they're just sad, you know, to, to see that, um, people, uh, disregard them. They find them all the time, but the fact that there, there's no, um, value or, or that the people buried there, uh, have no value and, or at least they're not seen with enough value. And what's the website? Oh, it's uh, vanishinghistory.org is the website. So Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Dr. Blakey? Thanks. My thanks to Fordham University's Sandra Arnold and Dr. Michael Blakey, former director of the African Burial Grounds Project and professor of anthropology at William & Mary. I'd also like to thank my producer, Alan Candlick. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. WFUV member, you can save money when visiting museums throughout the tri-state area. Show your WFUV member card for discounts at the Children's Museum of Manhattan, Bronx Museum of the Arts, and the Guggenheim. To see all the places where you can use your WFUV member card, visit WFUV.org.